Many of you know that the children's catechism, popular in our circles, begins with, who made you? To which the answer is, God. The second question is, what else did God make? And the answer is, God made all things. Now, you all know the inevitable question that a bright child will at some point eventually ask as you teach them the truth that God is the cause of all things that are made. Who then, the child will say, who then made God? Even atheists ask this question. If everything needs a cause, right, and we trace all things back to God, then what's his cause? Why can't we have an infinite series of causes? Now, there are good philosophical ways to respond to this question and bad ones, but we're not going to do that here. What we want to be clear about, however, is that the Christian claim is not that everything has a cause. If everything had a cause, then presumably God would, God would need a cause. The Christian claim is that every effect has a cause, and God is not an effect. So what's the answer to the question, who caused God? Well, part of that is what we want to look at this morning, and we will do this under the three headings that are there in your bulletins, being, blessedness, and bounty. Being, blessedness, and bounty. So first then, being. R.C. Sproul said that chills go up and down his spine whenever he sees the word aseity. Chills, whenever he sees the word aseity. Aseity here is A-S-E-I-T-Y, A-S-E-I-T-Y. In short, in short, the being of God excites him. The being of God excites him. Now, aseity is not a word that we use a lot but it points to a foundational and profound truth about God. Aseity comes from the Latin ase, meaning from oneself or from self. So it means God is from himself. He has existence. He has being from himself or within himself. Now here we have to be careful. This does not mean that God is his own cause or that God causes himself. That is an incoherent proposition. Nothing, even God, can be its own cause. Because it would already have to be to then cause itself. Right? The universe is not its own cause, no matter how many learned scientists say so. And even God is not his own cause. When we say God is ase, or when we predicate aseity of him, when we say that God lives from himself, we just mean that God is utterly independent, that he depends on no one or no thing, that he is fully self-sufficient. He just lives. He is life. He doesn't have life. He is life. He is the living God. He doesn't cause himself to be. There's no becoming in God. He just is. He is being itself, if you will. He is the uncreated source of all being, the unmade maker, the uncaused cause, right? And thus this God, 
designates himself, in the words of our Old Testament text, the famous text from Exodus 3, he designates himself as, I am who I am. And he is the only being who can make such an utterance. He is who he is. It is his nature to be. He is self-existence. God cannot not exist. Right? Our God cannot not exist. If you're having a conversation about whether or not there may be a God, you are in principle not talking about the Christian God, who in the nature of the case cannot not exist. He is existence itself. We, on the other hand, are frail and fleeting, contingent, dying beings. We are vapors. We live, as has been said, between two hospitals. And this one, our God, is immortal fullness of uncaused life. I am who I am. Now, right now, your spine is tingling. Hopefully it is. Now, at this point, <clears throat> lest you might think this is a novelty or a fringe idea, I want to cite the great uh, 19th and early 20th century Dutch Reformed theologian, Herman Bovink. This is his incredibly rich description of aseity. And here, he's not being novel. He's just a representative, a good one, of the whole tradition across the centuries. Bobbing says this, God is exclusively from himself, not in the sense of being self-caused, but being from eternity to eternity who he is, being, not becoming. God, he continues, is absolute being, the fullness of being, and therefore also eternally and absolutely independent in his existence, in his perfections, in all his works, the first and the last, the sole cause and final goal of all things, in this aseity of God, conceived not only as having being from himself, but also as the fullness of being, all other perfections are included. What a conclusion this is. In this aseity of God, all other perfections are included. Now you can see. This is, this is spine-tingling stuff for those who love God and who love him in and of himself. Right, if this is, if we're going to say this is boring, right, then one will have to conclude that God is boring. And certainly no one wants to step up and say that. If this isn't practical enough, then one will have to conclude that the being of God is impractical. But you know better. Right? You know high theology is highly practical, and throughout this series, we are going to see just how. Now, listen to our confession, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to it speak of our God. They don't use the word aseity, but this is an unpacking of the reality of him who is and who lives ase from himself. Here's the confession. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. So again, we are up against language faltering, trying to describe the perfection, the unmeasured perfection of our God. All life, all glory, all goodness, all blessedness he has 
in and of himself. He is absolutely self-contained and self-sufficient. He does not derive anything from any source. There are a lot of scriptures we could point to here, but let's just take two of them. Job 41 and Isaiah 40, for example. They both declare that no one has first given to God that they should be repaid by him. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? And who taught him justice? Who showed him the way of knowledge and understanding? So the confession goes on to say then that God is the alone fountain of all being. The alone fountain of all being. And this fountain of all being is, as Psalm 3, life. God just is life. This is why the gift of salvation is the gift of eternal life, because it is the gift of God himself. This is behind all the ascriptions of God in scripture as the living God. He is the ever-living one, the immortal God. It is not possible for him to die. He swears by himself. He takes an oath as the one who lives forever. We can hear, for example, in 1 Timothy, that he is the king of the ages, immortal, immortal, invisible, the only God. But as we saw last week, he dwells in unapproachable light. But the full verse speaks of God as he who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. As sinners, Romans 1 says, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So God is life, not like we have it. He has life because he is life. And we see this, this doctrine, even in the ministry of the incarnate God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In John chapter 5, <clears throat> Jesus Christ speaks of the aseity of God, which he himself shares in. He says this, he says, for as the Father has life in himself, that's aseity, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And of the Son, right, of the Son who was in the beginning with God, who was God, John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. It is this life, beloved, the life that God is, that we are given to share in, knowing this one is participation in his eternal life. That's being. That's being. That's our first point. Now, you might think this is all well and good. God is all sufficient. He's independent. He's the fullness of life and being. But what does that have to do with me? Well, I think we're going to hit closer to home with this second point. The second point is blessedness. Blessedness. Some of you took a Sunday school class I taught a few years ago where we use Michael Reeves' book entitled Delighting in the Trinity which is a good place to start on the topic of God. I hope to get, Lord willing, to God's triunity soon. But in that book, Reeves had a, a humorous heading at one point, which read as follows, single God, non-smoker, seeks attractive creation with a good sense of humor. Now, now his point was that God has need of nothing. He has no deficiencies. He has no lack which drives him to create. God is in himself, apart from us, infinitely happy. 
right? This will become even clearer when, when we consider the Trinity, right? The eternal communion, the communion of three persons in love and light and life. But we can make the point equally well from God's aseity. Here's the confession again, the Westminster Confession again. Listen, God has all life, glory, goodness, and note, and note, blessedness in and of himself. So the significance of this, right, the significance of this is as follows. The creation and the redemption of a billion worlds cannot make God one iota happier than he is in his infinite self-sufficient being. God is infinitely happy in himself, and we need, among other things, a recovery of the full, independent, self-sufficient blessedness, joy and self-delight of the triune God. And it is not possible to add to his happiness because he has and he, he has had from all eternity all, not some, all blessedness in and of himself. Now, this, this can be unnerving to, to us, and that's part of understanding the being of God. There is a strange, unnerving quality to some of this. We are egotistical creatures, and we like the idea of God's happiness depending on us and our works, on our earnest Christian endeavors. But that is because we have low, and in many cases, all too human conceptions of God. And we're always thinking him down to our level. We're always involved in what we have called cognitive idolatry. Surely we can do God some good, right? I mean, surely we can do God some good. Well, here's some bracing words from George Swinock, the 17th century English Puritan. He says this, neither the creature's goodness nor their goods do him the least good. Well, that's something you don't hear too often, is it? You don't hear that often because we don't proclaim the aseity of God with a full-throated, robust gladness. Let me hear Swinock again. Let us hear him. Neither the creature's goodness nor their goods do him the least good. Right? Neither your moral virtue nor your deeds do God the least good. Well, that's disquieting, especially for a church, right, that's been running around hysterically absorbed with everything but the being of God for the last 24 months. And for some people, for the last 24 years, right? One thing the pandemic did not do was drive us deep into God himself, right? One would, to listen, think the very blessedness of God depends on the American cultural and political situation. It certainly seems that our very blessedness depends on it. We can put this provocatively, right? If every single person in America converted to Christianity and was a noble and angelic example of Christian piety tomorrow, nothing would change in the happiness of God's intrinsic eternal being. Or alternatively, if every single person in America, all 330 or 340 million of them, embraced some satanic cult tomorrow and became devils incarnate, that also would not affect the blessedness and the happiness of God. 
Well, now a Sadie's getting up into our stuff. Rather, God's self-sufficiency, Swinnock insists, means, quote, he gains nothing by all the services, prayers, praises of his people. Neither does he lose anything by their neglect of their duties. What? What if we don't do our duty and America decays or falls? Won't God's glory be diminished? Won't he lose something? No. No, it won't and he won't. And if you don't believe this, you do not have the biblical God. You've got some American, Christianized, politicized alternative. This does not mean we cannot, in a sense, please and displease God. God is pleased with certain types of behavior, displeased with others. But whatever that means, it cannot mean that it affects his eternal, everlasting, Trinitarian bliss and blessedness. Again, here's the same point from our confession, from the same chapter two of the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Says this, God does not stand in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, right? God does not derive any glory from it. You may glorify God, but that does nothing to increase his intrinsic, full, replete glory. He does not derive any glory from creatures, but only manifests his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. This is a crucial point of Paul's address in Athens at the Areopagus in Acts 17. That was our New Testament lesson today. This is a place where the philosophers convene to talk about the gods and the like. And so to differentiate the biblical God from all others, Paul says this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, as though he needed anything. Right? Even something that God established, like the sacrificial system of worship, is not because he needs the offerings. God himself mocks this idea that he needs them. He's, here's Psalm 50. Listen to Psalm 50. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and all its fullness are mine. God does not need even our worship, right? You have not begun to worship the biblical God until you realize that your worship is utterly, completely superfluous and unnecessary. That it has no bearing on his absolute fullness of joy. You see, we are constantly correlating God to the creation and to ourselves. And that's why these words sound harsh or strange or new or different to us, right? We and our worship are superfluous, completely unnecessary to God's gladness. To summarize, and here I'll quote James Henley Thornwell, the 19th century Southern Presbyterian pastor. Some of you know Pastor Vance uh, did his PhD work on Thornwell. Anyway, Thornwell puts it this way. He says, the universe has added nothing to his bliss. 
and can subtract nothing from his fullness. It is just this that we mean, or we should mean, when we call God blessed. So much of our conversation, so much of our jittery agitation, is really a failure to see this fullness of blessedness possessed by the God who lives from himself. So our third point, finally, is bounty. Right? God is the fullness of being. That was our first point. And as such, he is the fullness of blessedness. That's the second point. And finally, out of this fullness, we experience his bounty. That is our final point. In ourselves, right, beloved, we are, we are broken cisterns which can hold no water. We live by derivative life. Life being drawn from elsewhere. In him, in him we live and we move and we have our being. We get life, we get breath, we get all things from him, from this inexhaustible fountain of life, which is God. I love the words of Psalm 104 when it speaks of creatures and our relation to the self-sufficient creator. The psalmist says, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So all we have then, all we have comes from the fountain of all being. The fountain of life overflows, right? And of course, when this fountain overflows, it does so in free love, free love, because this God has no need. Without grasping the aseity of God, we will not grasp the nature of grace, We will not fully grasp the idea of salvation as a free gift or creation itself as a free gift. The fountain of life overflows and we live, right? For this is a fountain which diffuses its goodness through the creation and on which the whole creation, the whole order of things hangs. Calvin puts this beautifully and he says, no drop will be found either of wisdom and light or of righteousness, or power, or rectitude, or of genuine truth, which does not flow from him, and of which he is not the cause. Right? This is a bounty which God shares with us. And in fact, right, if we think of his disposition of bounty toward us, his desire to bless us so that we might share his blessedness, extends all the way into eternity, into the mystery and into the glory of his own being. That is the fundamental point of that great passage in Ephesians 1 on election where he says, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. And he did it by choosing us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It was in love that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He did this according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has now blessed us in the beloved. So God's blessing of us flows out of his underived, his uncaused, his all-sufficient blessedness. He gave us grace in Christ, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, before the ages began. 
And in the fullness of time, Christ comes, the one who, as God, has life in himself, and yet as man, as bearing our humanity, lives a life of deep dependence on his Father. Right? We see the kind of dependence we frail creatures should have on the independent God. We see that in Jesus Christ. He lives a life of deep dependence on his Father. The one who alone can say, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the I am of Exodus 3 in human flesh. That one, that one empties himself, even unto death, enters our poverty, takes up and enters into our utter dependence, our subjection to death, that now exalted he might fill us up. Right? As John puts it of the word made flesh, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of life possessed by the God-man we receive grace. Do you want to see this doctrine and its connection to your salvation in an even more clear and condensed way? We have it here in Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. And with this, I will close. The text in Colossians 2 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Really an astonishing assertion. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Because the fullness of deity, the fullness of being, and the fullness of blessedness dwells in Christ bodily, you have been filled. You have been made complete. This independent, needless God, then, has and will supply all our needs, all of our deep dependencies, according to his glorious riches manifested in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.